Well, we're going to read from the Bible together now, and we're turning to the Old Testament this evening and to the book of 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 21. Uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to do a little short series on the life of King Josiah. And tonight we're starting that off by looking at 2 Kings chapter 21. You'll find it on page 328 over into 329 of the Pew Bibles. We're going to read the entire chapter, uh, chapter 21, verses 1 to 26, and also a couple of verses in chapter 22. Uh, so pages 328 and 329 of the Pew Bibles, 2 Kings 21, beginning at verse 1. And this is God's word to us. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hevizah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of, the, uh, house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations, and has done things more evil than all, than all the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing disaster upon Jerusalem and Judah. I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other besides the sin that he made Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did, and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his house, in the garden of Uzzah, and Ammon his son reigned in his place. Ammon was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Mishulameth, the daughter of Haraz of Jotbah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done. 
He walked in all the way in which his father walked and served the idols that his father had served and worshipped them. He abandoned the Lord, the God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of the Lord. And the servants of Amon conspired against him and put the king, put the, put, put the king to death in his house. But the people of the land struck down all those who had conspired against King Amon, and the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Amon that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And he was buried in his tomb in the garden of Uzzah, and Josiah his son reigned in his place. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adadiah of Boscath. He, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of, of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this evening. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Kings 21. And we're going to think about this passage together this evening. You'll find it in pages 328 over into 329 of the Pew Bibles. And as you're turning to that section of the Bible, let's pray for a moment together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is powerful, that your word is true, and that your word is life-giving. And we pray that as we come to your word now, that you would help us to understand it, that you would help us to see something of your purposes for your church and in your world, but also that you would point us to our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus. Father, help us in these moments to focus on you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ch churches are closing all over the Western world. Areas, towns, villages, communities that once had a, a vibrant gospel witness are closing their doors. I came across an article while I was off on holidays which had the title, How Do You Resurrect an Empty Church? The subtitle was, America's Aging Houses of Worship Face a Stark Choice, Sell, Redevelop, or pray for a miracle. Uh, the article is entirely based on the Amer American church, but so much of it seemed familiar. It started by telling the story of Summerfield Church in Milwaukee. They held their last service at the end of June. The church was built in 1904 to house the state's oldest Methodist congregation, and it's in a really, or was in a really strategic position. But by this spring, the congregation had dwindled to just 11 members none younger than 65. And the congregation also had a repair bill of $1.3 million for their water-damaged building. Once it was a busy congregation, once its pews were full, now it's closed. What happened? Why did it happen? It's a story that's re replaying itself across America, according to the article, but we know in our own context that it's beginning to happen here as well. One person interviewed for the article said, churches have been on the edge of a cliff and COVID was a blast of air blowing them off. There's a great mismatch between small aging congregations and large aging properties. In America, as in Northern Ireland, old buildings are being sold and used as theatres or are being turned into housing. 
But Tim Keller, the, the American pastor who recently died, recalled the jarring sight of a former church in Manhattan being turned into a nightclub. Keller wrote, the church was now the limelight, an epicenter of the downtown club scene. Thousands of people a night showed up for drugs and sex and the possibility of close encounters with the famous of the cultural avant-garde. It was a vivid symbol of a culture that had rejected Christianity. Churches are closing all over the Western world. Areas, towns, villages, communities that once had a vibrant gospel witness are closing their doors. Why? Well, what has happened? There's lots that we could say in terms of societal and cultural shifts and the changes in religious adherence. People don't go to church in the same way that they used to years ago. But, but on a spiritual level, th- those reasons aren't very significant. Well, one of the main spiritual reasons that churches are closing their doors is because they have abandoned the word. Churches all over the Western world are closing their doors because they've turned their backs on the word. Now, the thing is, it's not something that has started recently. The, the Old Testament tells us the story of God's people abandoning the word over and over and over again. God tells them at various points that his word is powerful, but his people reject it. And what follows is spiritual darkness, a day of small things. The interesting thing about the church in Milwaukee that closed at the end of June is that their slogan, their church motto was inclusive, authentic healing. Just three words, inclusive, authentic healing. It's not hard to work out what kind of church it was but it must have abandoned the word, and now it's closed. There's a mystery to God's ways. We can't really explain it on a human level why churches are closing. It's mysterious, confusing, difficult to understand why churches that were once staunch for the gospel have turned away from the truth. But it's an important reminder to us that we must hold firm to the word. It's important that we know our Bibles, and it's important that we realize the power of the word as well. It's with all that in mind we come to 2 Kings 21. We're starting this new short series tonight on King Josiah, but before looking at the story of his life, we need to set the scene. And the scene before his reign is one of spiritual devastation. It's a spiritual wasteland. If there were churches in Josiah's day, before Josiah's day, they would have been closing just like they are in our day. The books of First and Second Kings are probably not top of your favorite Bible book list, Uh, We're in the depths of the Old Testament tonight, and it might be that this is unfamiliar territory. Not going to bore you with a whole lot of Bible history, but there are a few things that are important for you to know about where we are in terms of the big story of the Bible. The story of the people of God is the story of rebellion and decline. Israel was God's chosen nation, a people for his own possession, but they consistently rebel and reject God's rule. In 1 Samuel, so a little bit further back in the story than where we are now, God's people ask for a king to rule over them. It's a sad request because it's a rejection of God as their king. They ask for a king to rule over them like the rest of the nations. God grants the request and subsequently makes astonishing promises to David, Israel's most famous king. And part of that promise to David is that his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom that will never end. Now, we know that David wasn't a perfect king, and that was certainly true of all the kings that followed him. First and second Samuel tell the story of King Saul and King David. 
while first and second kings tell the story of the kings that followed them. The history of Israel's kings is a very checkered history. The kingdom was united, but it splits in first Kings 12. Ten, ten tribes stay together and make up Israel, the northern kingdom. Two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, break away and they form the southern kingdom. From 1 Kings 12 on, the author of Kings tells the story of the two kingdoms. Most of the kings of Israel were bad kings. A particularly low point was the reign of Ahab. Elijah was God's prophet during that reign and he led Israel to sin greatly against God. But eventually Israel's sin catches up with itself. Israel falls in 2 Kings 17. It's conquered by the nation of Assyria and it goes into exile never to return. After 2 Kings 17, the author of Kings continues to tell the story of the southern kingdom of Judah. Judah, though, well, it isn't too far behind Israel in terms of sin and rebellion. And things hit rock bottom in 2 Kings 21. Manasseh is Judah's Ahab. He is the worst king ever. The worst king in the history of God's people. Now, you're maybe thinking, what relevance do these stories have to us? That all sounds very interesting but are you gonna just give us a history lesson over the next few weeks? I'm definitely not. But a key principle of biblical interpretation is that the Old Testament nation of Israel is replaced by the New Testament church. So both are the people of God, both are described as the people of God. They just live on either side of the cross. Therefore, the stories about Old Testament Israel, Judah, have direct application to the church today. Israel and Judah forgot the word, the church on a broad level today, has done the same. Among other things, this series is going to remind us of the importance of the word and the power of the word. Before we get to Josiah though, we have to understand the darkness that came before him. And that's what we're gonna to do tonight as we look at this chapter together. One final bit of background to mention, and it's that Hezekiah was Manasseh's father. Now you might know the name Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a good king, but Manasseh didn't follow in his father's footsteps. Let's look at this chapter together. We're going to see three things. We're going to see how the worst king ever, Manasseh, is deliberately unfaithful, how he receives a devastating judgment, and of how he leaves a dismal legacy. Three simple points that'll take us to the heart of this passage. First of all then, Manasseh is deliberately unfaithful. Let's read verses 1 and 2. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So not a great start. Manasseh takes the throne when he's 12, and he reigns for 55 years. The writer is really keen to make sure that we understand that he was a terrible king. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The, the word evil pops up three times in verses one to nine. The point is pretty simple, can't miss it. Manasseh is not a good guy. And as evil is spelled out and explained in the opening verses of the chapter, pretty much everything evil that you could think of was part of Manasseh's reign. He restores all the altars to Baal. He made an Asherah and we're told that Ahab did that as well. Not a good thing to be in, in league with Ahab. The Asherah was especially bad because it was the symbol of fertility, of the fertility goddess, and he puts it in the temple. It's not, it's not just like taking a mistress. 
It's like taking a mistress and having her live in the family home. Bad, bad, bad. Deuteronomy 4 tells us that the proper punishment for idolatry was forcible removal from the land of promise. So in other words, or just one word, exile is the judgment that is coming. Judah's days are numbered from this point on. As well as idolatry, there was child sacrifice and some dark arts, fortune-telling, omens, mediums, necromancers. All of those things were forbidden in the law as well. The, the list and the detail in verses 1 to 9 isn't just a random list of Manasseh's sins and corrupt practices. Behind it is a total rejection of God. Manasseh uses the temple as his own private worship area and he erects altars to whatever he wants. Now, we're not given a reason for his godlessness, but it's very clear that he is deliberately unfaithful. It's so deliberate. And he's Hezekiah's son, godly Hezekiah, who ripped the altars down and who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Manasseh comes along and systematically turns the clock back on his father's reign. Verses 1 to 9 are an undoing of 2 Kings 18, 3 to 8. You should go home and compare those two passages 2 Kings 18, 3 to 8, and 2 Kings 21, 1 to 9. What Hezekiah destroys, Manasseh builds. What Hezekiah rejects, Manasseh embraces. Passing lesson for us uh, in terms of Hezekiah and Manasseh is that godliness doesn't run in the genes. We probably know this already. Godliness is not transmitted or passed down the generations. Faith doesn't run in the family in the same way that brown eyes and dark hair do. Godly parents don't necessarily mean believing children. Some of us gathered here tonight are very aware of that and have stories of sons and daughters who have been brought up knowing the truth but who have turned their back on it. We're going to keep going, but if that's something you're very conscious of, very worried about, hang in there because Manasseh's story has a surprising ending. Well, one of the most significant details in verses 1 to 9 is that Manasseh reigns for 55 years. He wipes out Hezekiah's reforms, he increases wickedness, and actually exhausts the patience of God. 2 Kings 23 tells us that the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. Manasseh is the straw that breaks the camel's back. In the end, it's because of him that Judah goes into exile. But Manasseh's long reign presents us with something of a theological problem. Why was he allowed to reign for as long as he did? Why was he allowed to do so much damage? Proverbs 10, 27 says, The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. Except 55 years is a pretty long time. You, you wouldn't call this reign short. The theological problem is why. Well, why does God allow this godless, unfaithful king to run riot for 55 years? You can imagine that his government, government machine would have been very effective at getting his spiritual raw sewage out and about. You can imagine that celebration and, celebrations and events would have been organized to promote all of this evil, Come to the celebration in Jerusalem, there'll be something for all the family. In some senses, it's a mystery. But biblical clarity, knowing and understanding the Bible, it doesn't eliminate life's puzzles. 
Having some knowledge of God's truth doesn't mean that we understand God's ways. It's as the Lord says of himself, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Do you ever wonder why God is doing something a certain way? Do you ever wonder why God is not doing a certain thing your way? Think of the small group of believers who would have met during Manasseh's 55-year reign. I bet they were asking the same questions. There comes a point where we have to say, Lord, we don't understand this. We can't comprehend this. But you love us and we trust you. The worst king ever is deliberately unfaithful, but his unfaithfulness doesn't go unnoticed. It brings a devastating judgment. It's all laid out for us in verses 10 to 16. This is the the second point. There's a devastating judgment. This chapter doesn't have the same storyteller's grip on us as some of the previous chapters do. It acts as a judicial verdict of Manasseh's reign. Manasseh is before the bar of God's justice. His, his crimes are laid out before us. And the judge of all the earth gives his judgment on these miserable years. What we learn from verses 10 to 16 is that there were still some people who followed Yahweh, followed the Lord, and some prophets speak out against his reign. That, that, that's one of the features of First and Second Kings. Prophets known and unknown faithfully speak God's word, God's word to God's people. The response varies, but the word is always spoken with power. In calling Manasseh the worst king ever, we're not just saying that he was one of the worst kings in Israel or Judah's history. We're actually saying that he was one of the worst kings ever known in the region. That's what the author tells us anyway. Look at verse 11. At the beginning of the prophetic judgment on his reign, we're told that Manasseh committed more evil than all the Amorites. They were the people who inhabited the land of Canaan before God's people, and they were really evil. But Manasseh is worse. It's astonishing. The judgment of God is announced in four pictures. The terror inspired by the coming judgment is described as making people's ears tingle, verse 12. The second picture is of a plumb line, which had already measured Ahab and Samaria and found them wanting. It's a really vivid picture, actually. Think of the builders up the site, up on, up on the site laying their blocks. They use a little bit of string to make sure that their blocks are in line. The picture here isn't construction, though. It's deconstruction. God is going to be involved in a demolition job. And then there's the third picture, which is of the kitchen. So it's after dinner. You're clearing up, washing the plates, cleaning the bowls. What do you do when you're doing the dishes? You wash whatever it is you've used. You dry both sides with a tea towel. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. Total judgment is about to fall on Manasseh and Judah. The fourth picture comes in verse 14. God will abandon his people, give them over to their enemies so that they are prey and spoil. They're going to be easy pickings to the invaders. Nothing is going to prevent their exile now. They're utterly helpless. Now, the thing is, the author doesn't just blame Manasseh for this devastating judgment. The whole nation is answerable. Just look at the end of verse 15. There has been an ongoing habit and tradition of rejecting God ever since the people were brought out of Egypt. 
It has been the one consistent thing on the part of God's people from the day they left Egypt up until this point. Their whole national history has been one long exercise in aggravating God. Because of Manasseh, they reached the point of no return, but there's a long history of unfaithfulness behind them. It's all very solemn, isn't it? Iniquity, sin, rebellion. You can, iniquity, sin, rebellion can, can pass a point that places a nation or even an individual beyond hope of recovery and makes judgment irreversible. One of the books I was reading this week on Second Kings, there was a story which was a very powerful illustration of this, of going beyond the line, the unseen line. Some time ago, there was a student at a university in America who was celebrating his 21st birthday. The student had come up with a way of celebrating. He decided to down a shot of scotch for every year of his life. He downed 20 shots in 10 minutes and passed out before the final one. He was found blue and unconscious the next day. He died in hospital having been admitted with a blood alcohol level of 0.39%. Now to put that in context, you're considered over the limit if you have a blood alcohol level of 0.8%. The student had a limit. He didn't know what it was. He went beyond it and it destroyed him. And that's how it is with idolatry and depravity. There's a line that we can cross and we don't know where it is. It's a dangerous thing to test the patience of God. Manasseh, the worst king ever, is deliberately unfaithful and he, along with the nation of Judah, received a devastating judgment. He also leaves a dismal legacy. That's the third thing we see in this passage. Throughout the book of Kings, there's a standard formula that ends the story of a king's reign. The formula always begins, now the rest of the acts of king so-and-so and all that he did, and continues like that, that's the summary formula for kings of Judah, and that occurs 15 times in First and Second Kings. Usually it has, a, has that standard footnote form. You can find the record of the king's acts in the Chronicles as well. Occasionally the writer will add a mention of the king's might or cities that he built or his war record or in, or in Hezekiah's case, the water system that he built. But only Manasseh gets a special mention for his sin. Just look at verse 17. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? The rest of Judah's kings were sinners as well. But Manasseh's story can't be told without explaining how wicked he was. It's quite an obituary. Manasseh, the only king who is specially noted for his sin. Manasseh didn't just leave a memory, though he passed on a legacy. We're told about Amon, Manasseh's son, in verses 20 and 21. Try and spot the triple emphasis on what Amon is like. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh, his father, had done. He walked in all the way in which his father walked and served the idols that his father served and worshipped them. He did what his father did. He did what his father did. He did what his father did. Three times, you can't miss it. Amon was a chip off the old block, but the people of Judah can tolerate this family no more. In verses 23 and 24, Amon is assassinated. Was it a political assassination? We're not sure. But what happens to the people who assassinated Amon? Well, they're assassinated themselves. Judah's unraveling at this point. It's almost civil war. The people of the land rise up 
and take out those who killed King Amon. Their motivation, who knows? But they make Josiah king. Now we're not told an awful lot about the people of the land. Their motivation, their depth of faith. But isn't it fascinating that after 55 years of Manasseh and two years of Manasseh Jr., they don't reject the kingly line of David. They could have said, this line is corrupt and beyond repair. Let's start with another line. It's not what they say. God's promise that David's kingdom would be a forever kingdom still holds true. It might even have been in their minds. The people of the land hadn't enjoyed the blessing of a good king for decades, but they install an eight-year-old descendant of David as king. You see, what's happening here, despite Manasseh's deliberate unfaithfulness and despite the devastating judgment that is just around the corner, God is being faithful to his people and he's going to give them one final chink of light before exile. He's going to do that through a boy who becomes king. Manasseh, the worst king ever, is deliberately unfaithful. He receives a devastating judgment and he leaves a dismal legacy. But as the beginning of the next chapter tells us, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. One last great king who comes into thick spiritual darkness and shines light on the nation. More on him next week but you can see already of how Josiah is going to point us to the greater king who came. What was said of him? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Priests. Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was deliberately faithful for unfaithful people like us. He bore the devastating judgment of God on the cross for our sin. And he leaves a glorious spiritual legacy that will one day be fully revealed in eternity as men and women and boys and girls trust in him. So, so sometimes it's hard to see the gospel in Old Testament passages like this, it's sin, sin, and more sin in 2 Kings 21. But Manasseh points us to Jesus because Jesus is everything Manasseh is not. Now, there is a postscript to this story. If you're a keen Bible reader, you'll know that First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles are two different histories of Israel's and Judah. They cover the same material, but just tell the stories in a slightly different way. It's a bit like the Gospels in the New Testament. But in 2 Chronicles 33, something amazing happens to Manasseh. He repents. You need to turn to the chapter to believe me. You'll find it on page 385 of the Pew Bibles. Page 385. Don't normally get you to do cross-references, particularly not this late in the sermon, but you need to turn over to this. You need to see this. Page 385, 2 Chronicles 33. The context is that the Assyrians take Manasseh to Babylon and they do all sorts of nasty things to him. And this probably happened towards the end of his reign when significant spiritual damage had already been done in the nation. But just look at what we're told in Second Chronicles 33, verse 13. 
Manasseh prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Manasseh, wicked, evil, deliberately unfaithful Manasseh. He repents. He even makes some changes, good changes, spiritually speaking, in the verses that follow. Now, before we sprint down the track of saying, isn't it great that he turned to the Lord before he died? We need to stop and realize that 2 Chronicles 33 doesn't make much difference. It's great that Manasseh repented. It's great that he was converted. The grace of God runs far and wide. The vilest offender who truly believes will be pardoned. It's good that Manasseh turned to the Lord and that he tried to undo some of the mess that he made. But his new life, his new personal relationship with God, didn't affect things all that much. The disaster had been inflicted. The poison had been administered. The nation is doomed. Now, what's the lesson? It must be this, if nothing else. A healthy spiritual legacy doesn't come from a late and sudden conversion. It comes from the practice of lifelong, attractive godliness. Let me say that again. A healthy spiritual legacy doesn't come from a late and sudden conversion. It comes from the practice of lifelong, attractive godliness. In other words, it's much better to trust in Christ now and live a godly life now than live however you please in the hope that you might one day receive mercy and have the opportunity to repent. It means that if you're putting off trusting in Christ until later in life or even until your deathbed, you're playing with fire. One, because you may not have the opportunity and two, because the legacy you leave behind might not be worth talking about. A healthy spiritual legacy doesn't come from a late and sudden conversion. It comes from the practice of lifelong attractive godliness. The scene then is set for Josiah, the eight-year-old boy who becomes king. The king who points us to the greater king who offers mercy and grace if we would only turn to him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for its power. And despite the fact we're in the depths of the Old Testament tonight, we thank you that your word has come powerfully to us. We pray tonight that we would realize that a, a healthy spiritual legacy doesn't come from living how we please and then repenting later in life, that, that it comes from the practice of lifelong attractive godliness. Help us to have that as our goal this week. Help us to live attractive godly lives, trusting in Christ and so that others might come to know him as well. Father, we pray for those who haven't yet trusted in Christ. We pray that even tonight, as your word has been explained, we, we pray that by your spirit, you would convict of sin and bring people to see their need of a savior. Father, help us as we think through the rest of this series, as we study the life of King Josiah, but point us to Jesus throughout this series so that we might know him better as well. 
And we pray these things in his precious name. Amen.